Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. This week, I have a right good chat with Sean Murphy, the 2005 world champion. Sean was very generous with his time. He likes a good natter about a range of subjects, but mainly, of course, about his brilliant career. Although, if you stay tuned to the very end, you'll hear some uh, top chat about the James Bond films. Sean, I always start by asking my guests how they discovered snooker. What was your introduction to the sport? My introduction was um, completely at random. It was a Christmas present that I had no idea was coming my way. I'd asked for a Commodore 64 computer. A couple of my mates had one as an eight-year-old. And um, I didn't realise at the time, but my family were, were going through some exceptionally difficult times financially. We were actually on the border of having our house repossessed. And so the, uh, the, the Commodore 64 was a no-no. And so this um, very small four-and-a-half you know, by one and a half feet snooker table from Toys R Us appeared in the lounge. And um, I remember walking down and seeing it and instantly assuming that something had gone wrong, but was fascinated immediately by it, actually. And there's pictures of me playing that day um, uh, and playing all weekend over Boxing Day and through that period and having to be dragged off the table. Um, Instantly fell in love with the, the game and trying to, how do you put that ball there, and how do you put that ball in that pocket, and yeah, there's some early uh, images um, that I think my mum still has um, in my pyjamas playing snooker on Christmas Day and Boxing Day, and just that fascination started from an eight-year-old child. And this is a question I think it's quite hard for people to answer, but why do you think you were fascinated, what was it about snooker that drew you in? Well, it wasn't something I'd seen anything of at that point. So it wasn't like a football or whether 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 things were so obvious. I, th- I think what I was challenged by snooker was that it was there was obviously something that the players on the television that I was watching there was obviously something they could do that people who my dad was playing with in the snooker clubs and people I was watching from that was something they couldn't do. And um, I think it was that fascination to try and almost sort of peek behind the veil of. Uh, what was obvious and try and work out what what about the game separated the ones the professionals mm. from everyone else and that was a fascination I had from probably being nine years of age you know trying to understand um, 
you know, the sort of breaks I was knocking in, what, what were the really top amateurs in my club and what were the professionals, what were they able to do that I wasn't able to do? And that was, that was kind of what my entire junior and young life was built on, trying to watch what the guys on TV were doing and copy them. What you also had was quite a thriving junior circuit. So every weekend, particularly obviously at Willie Thorns in Leicester, there'd be tournaments where you'd be coming up against guys you're now playing professionally. Yeah, and in some ways, for me and my generation, the tour hasn't changed. <laughs> the venues have changed. Same we, faces. You know, it's the same faces, mm. and you walk into any players' lounge now, and it's and it's the majority is sort of my generation of lads. We've grown up playing. You know, I remember walking into Ryan Day as a twelve-year-old. He had the biggest hands I'd ever seen. <laughs> um, you know, and just beat just beats people you know he just beat everyone back in the in the junior days um, as did new Mark Selby's and sadly no longer with us Lee Spicks of the world you know were just phenomenal talents um, and then when Stephen Maguire would come down from Scotland you knew it was a big event if if he and his family had driven from Glasgow to come and play at Willie's or wherever the tournament might be um, the junior days back then and then the amateur days that followed were phenomenal and the standard of play on show every week from kids, remember, you know, these are kids, sure. was uh, was different. But also, you're not just going to the club to have a knockabout, you're playing in tournaments, so it actually matters. So you're learning about tournament play as well as sort of learning your craft as a player as well. Yeah, and, and, and funnily enough, interestingly for me now, with my two nephews who are trying to pursue a snooker career for themselves, it's sort of that, that, that junior um, life seems to have changed a bit. It seemed a bit more cutthroat in my day you'd go pay your money play in a tournament and if you lost you went home whereas now they go and they play and it's around robin and people have they, they seem to have sort of gone down the road of well people have driven a long way let's accommodate them let's have a round robin where you're guaranteed two or three that wasn't the way it was in our day and i'm not convinced that it hasn't made them a bit softer yeah they get more value for money and they don't travel around the country for one best of five and i completely understand that but what we learned was that if you weren't ready, you lost, mm. and you were going home and usually having a row with your dad in the car. <laughs> um, you know, we had, there was plenty of those days. But I think that, that, that sort of innate competitiveness that snooker is built on, sport is, is brutal, yeah. um, we got that from an early age. Mm. And I guess it gave you the hunger to turn pro, and you turned pro actually, I think you were actually still 15, so you are very young when you, when you started out. Yeah, I was several weeks short of my 16th birthday. I remember, I remember one of the ushers... Uh, at the Plymouth Pavilions, who took me under her wing as a young boy, uh, she took pity on me. She she brought me my 16th uh, birthday cake uh, into the Plymouth Pavilions, and uh, knowing me back then, I probably demolished the line. <laughs> so what was that like? Because I mean, 15—that is young to be tur- turning pro in any sport, but certainly snooker, which you know, is obviously the pros, just quite old pros, people you see on the TV. Suddenly, you're there amongst them. Yeah, well, it was funny because I didn't feel out of my depth as far as ability was concerned, but I was certainly made to feel out of my depth by certain players on the tour who I don't really want to name. But, you know, there was one particular player who took me aside at, at the Plymouth Pavilions and said, well, you know, would you mind just coming with me for a quick coffee? And I respected this player, and he took me into a, a deserted cafe. Remember, I'm 15, and told me in no uncertain terms that, I shouldn't be there. Um, it was taking the, you know, what's it that I was even allowed on the tour. Um, I wasn't welcome. Um, and really, um, you know, it was a real um, Mickey take that I was even allowed to be there. Uh, very aggressive man. Uh, didn't make me feel welcome at all. And that was kind of my birth into 
professional sport, and I was well, welcome to the tour. Welcome to the tour. Yeah. It, w- it was a rude awakening into yeah. what professional life is like. These men were earning their money to pay their mortgages, gas bills, water bills. Obviously, real life. Mm. And uh, here was this 15-year-old kid who they didn't feel mm. should have been there. Mm. But also, you'd had a few at that time. You were having a few uh, matches at the Premier League, uh, Dr. Martins, and you got to play a few of the the top players in that. What was that like? That must have been an incredible experience. Well, my father had negotiated the deal between Dr. Martins and Matchroom Sport for the European League, now which was then the Premier League. And um, in the deal was that I got to play every frame, every player a frame throughout the season, just before the main match as a little, as a little warm-up. Mm. Uh, but for me, it was invaluable. And from 12 years of age, being able to walk out and play the Steve Davises, Hendrews, Jimmy Whites, Alan McManus's, Ken Doherty's, and my idols... Um, the learning was just second to none. And I would then go to a, you know, I'd go to an under-15s event at the weekend after, and, you know, I, I, my game was attuned to playing Steve Davis. Mm. And then I'd walk into my sort of, you know, my, my, my kids my age. And so the learning was very steep. And, um, you know, we certainly saw those matches against the professionals. For three years that happened. We saw it as a massive um, learning opportunity, mm. and of course, I got battered in most of them. But I did win a few, mm. uh, and um, you know, it taught me a lot. A lot was learned in those few years. Mm. What were the early years like on the tour? Because it is tough. It's still tough now. It's tough then as well. And I guess it doesn't take long to if you start losing a few matches, where you start to maybe doubt yourself a bit. I remember my first year on tour. Obviously, within a few weeks, I turned 16 and was was eligible to be there and was was all right. And the the, the you know the first thing we looked at as a family was what do you have to do to retain your place? It wasn't a two year card; it was a one year card. Uh, and they set the benchmarks for retaining your tour space. Halfway through the season, they changed their minds, the governing body, and moved the goalposts, um, which which effectively mathematically meant that. It was almost impossible for me to stay on the tour. And everyone who was around my position wasn't just me. But, you know, felt quite unfairly relegated at the end of the season. I think I would have had to have, you know, certainly got to a final venue and maybe a quarter final to mathematically get on for the following year. Uh, it was very unfair. At the same time, though, you know, I was allowed to compete on the UK tour sure. and um, try to sort of cement your position that way you know if you are going to get relegated well play on this tour and you know you might get back on and that didn't happen either so this you know 15 year old got on the tour it was big news got pumped you know every time he went out basically and didn't make it through on the UK tour and that was me off the tour I was off the tour for a good two or three seasons uh, watching you know lads who I was who I'd grown up with go off and do great things um, having to watch them from afar did go to the qualifiers every now and then just to watch and try and see where I was going wrong. And my, my, my life was reduced to sort of three or four. Um, it then the UK tour became the challenge tour. And my life became about making sure I got through the challenge tour, four events. I think the top 64 qualified after four events, back onto the main tour. And um, I think I achieved that in either 99 or 2000. Um, I think I was on the Young Players of Distinction scheme at that same time. It was funny being in a room with five other lads who were all on the main tour, and I wasn't. Mm. And it seemed a bit... It, see, I remember feeling a bit out of place, really, with it all, but um, I guess you just kind of keep your head down and, and do your best. Mm. But it seems to me, and you can tell us, but you, you've always seemed to have self-belief. You've always believed in yourself. It's one of your sort of strong characteristics. You've always been sort of positive and confident. 
was it a challenge to stay that way when, as you say, you're not on the tour, you're seeing your mates sort of doing well and you're just desperate to get back on? I think it's something I've heard said about me quite a lot. Um, and it's funny because I think anyone that actually knows me would say, yeah, I mean, Sean does come across a bit like that, but actually we know him a lot better. And um, there's a lot to be said for giving off that uh, confident air because of the effect it has on your opponents. Um, you know, and, and you don't want to be giving away that feeling that you're a little bit nervous or questioning your judgment or whatever. So sometimes I've been guilty of uh, over-egging the pudding, but um, actually deep down finding things quite difficult. And, but you managed uh, to hide it better than some, maybe. Yes, mm. and uh, played the part yeah. of a confident you know, young man and, and all the rest of it, when actually, uh, as I say, certainly my family or friends that knew me well would know that yeah, it was all a bit of an act. OK, because I remember the first time you played at the Crucible, you played Stephen Hendry, and it would have been 18, 19 at the time, and he won, but you came in the press conference afterwards and spoke, I'm not kidding, more eloquently than most of the top 16, and we thought, wow, this mm. is, who is this guy? Mm. And clearly one to watch. Where does that come from? Is that just from the people you're around, or was it, was it something you made an effort to be like? Because at that time, I know you've been on the, the course, the Young Players of Distinction course, but... Usually players just turn pro, they turn up, and they're not really told how to behave, but you seem to have all that down. Mm. Well, I mean, I was brought up in a family, and I was very lucky to have a father that, that knew the ropes, um, and he tried to have a career in professional sport as well, um, and hadn't succeeded in that, but had gone on to have a very successful um, career in business, and he knew what it took to be a success, in inverted commas. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he taught me from a young age that just being good enough on the table wasn't enough. That wasn't what professional sport was about. If you look at, um, you know, pretty take any other sport and the top players in those sports, the term professional, you know, encapsulates how they are off the table as well because you're representing that sport. You're not just a snooker player. I try and represent snooker as well, you know, wherever I go. And I guess that came across in how I spoke, the words I used. I was always very cautious and, and, and aware of um, trying to say and do the right thing. I don't remember when doing and saying the right thing became wrong. <laughs> you know, the generation today seems to get a thrill out of doing the wrong thing. It's become in vogue to, um, you know, stick two fingers up to authority. And that isn't the way I was brought up. Um, thing was, is, I think it's snooker and maybe sport in general. A lot of people like that. A lot of people like Alex Higgins, you know, mm. Jimmy, Ronnie, that sort of side of it, where mm. it's kind of the rebel against everyone else. Mm. But that's not you. I guess my idols were, you know, I had Steve Davis's picture up in my wall, mm. in my bedroom as a child. I looked at him, and then as I grew up, I started to look at, uh, you know, the top golfers of the day, and the top tennis players of the day. You know, I don't remember Beyond Borg being that way. I remember John McEnroe being like that, and he wasn't one of the guys I looked up to. And I guess, you know, I built my idea of what being a professional meant based on those guys and so I look back at some of the things I said in my early pro career and think like what were you talking about what were you saying but that was the way I was back then okay so your, your career continued and you were sort of I guess you were sort of bubbling under a bit you were becoming better known but you hadn't really broken through you won the, the Masters qualifier mm. um but we go now to 2004-05 season, so you get to a semi-final, British Open semi-final, so that's a breakthrough. But it's a big step up from that to suddenly at the World Championship come through the pack and win it. So what happened in between? And I think I'm right in saying at one point around that time you were considering actually doing something else. 
you know what happened was I had the little run in the, the British Open to the semis and uh, got what I, I won my quarter final and suddenly my phone lit up of you know friends and family suddenly wanted to come and watch and uh, everyone came I think you know everyone I knew came to the semi and I got beat six nil yeah. um, by John Higgins who would go on to be a bit of a nemesis of mine uh, but it was a very sort of stark reality check of right this is what it's actually like at the cutting edge of an event. And I went away, and of course your expectations are raised then. You think, well, I've been there now, I'm going to get there again soon, and it didn't happen. And at the time I, I teamed up with my uh, a new coach, Steve Prest. I was working very hard with Steve. You know, we were both putting the hours in. Uh, we were doing, you know, sometimes double-figure hour days, uh, really grafting hard on the game. And aside from the British Open, had no results at all. And... I went to Prestatin for the qualifiers prior to the World Championships and I lost a match. I lost a match that you couldn't lose. I was <laughs> four each in four at four each and um, 50 yard ahead with three reds left and had my opponent snooker on all three reds, touching ball behind the brown. Nice. And I'm sat in my chair thinking I've qualified for this tournament, this is nice, blah, blah, blah. And then my opponent jacked up and hit out of the snooker caught the red which went round the table and in off the blue uh, in doing so freed a red off the side cushion that was safe little banker and proceeded to clear up right. and Steve and I travelled home in absolute silence um, I went home I went and sourced a job at the local Mercedes dealership where I lived at the time I said to the guy was it possible to um, go there and, and, and maybe look at um, look at an opportunity there and he said, well, you know, come back and see me in a few weeks' time. And, uh, we'll, you know, we'll see how you go and we'll take it from there. In that little space of time was the qualifiers for the World Championships, which I entered because I'd paid my money and it, well, I thought it was disrespectful to pay your entry fee and not go. And um, obviously I qualified and, and the rest is history. But, um, yeah, up until that point I had a job secured selling cars. OK, well, let's talk about the World Championship uh, 2005. As I say, you were known to snooker people, but maybe outside that they didn't know you, and yet you've come through, I guess, as far as they're concerned, out of nowhere. Just talk us through that. First of all, you had to qualify for the Crucible, uh, and then talk about your journey through to the, the title. Well, I mean, as we touched on, I, I played in the qualifiers um, almost out of a respect for the value of money, you know, having come from quite a... Um, poor background um, £700 entry fee to the World Championships was a lot of money for me and so um, you know I entered the, I didn't want to play and I'd fallen out of love with the game really if I'm honest um, but I played because I'd already paid and I went to the qualifiers and played um, I think I played Marcus Campbell uh, and played well and you know you, you, you play these best of 19s and you sort of you can get into the game and just suddenly some of the things that Steve and I had been working on started to come into the started to show themselves and then it was a couple of days to wait and a few friends of mine from Sheffield came over and made the journey to support me um, in the match to qualify for the Crucible, which was against Joe Swale. Um, I remember we all went out for a real nice Indian meal the night before and my mates were more bothered about uh, if Michaela Tab was going to referee the match uh, or not. And, and, and when we walked into the arena, and I'm sure Michaela did referee the match, I'm sure I'm not getting this wrong, um, they visibly like let out a, a fist pump. Yes, <laughs> and it wasn't a come on, Sean. It was a Michaela's referee, and um, you know boys will be boys. And um, the match, the match was very high quality, as I remember. Um, scored well, played well, 
and got through. And, you know, that was the, my third outing at the Crucible. I'd never won a match there. And, uh, yeah, we, we went, we did a little drive-by of the Crucible, Steve and I. I remember someone from the Sheffield Star asking me about my prospects and my thoughts. And, you know, as I did back then, made a statement that, that could have been taken wrongly, which was, well, somebody's going to win, why can't it be me? And um, 17 days later, mm. you know, the, the, the guy reminded me of that at the, <laughs> the, the press call the following morning yeah. after the final when we did it at the hotel after, after yeah. the match. You first ran through Chris Small, who at that time had his sort of back trouble, so he was, I guess, on the decline a little yeah. bit. But then it's John Higgins in the second round who could beat you in that semi-final that you mentioned. He was a heavy favourite again. Yes. In, in beating him, did you then start to think, well, hang on, there's not many people left, and if I can beat him, I can beat anybody? Well, John Higgins was really the, the player who I saw as my nemesis. He, he, every time I got to a career best, first time I made the last 16 was at the Prestonville Hall in the, in the LG Cup, was John beat me. Then I got through to my career best of a semi-final, British Open, beat me, beat me well. And walking into John Higgins first, after, after winning my first match at the Crucible ever, walking onto John Higgins in the second round was a, listen, let's just go out, give your best. You know, my friends and family are saying, listen, just try your best. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, no one expects anything of you and all of this. And as I say, I was still on a, I was still on a knife edge as to whether I was going to continue with snooker. Um, somewhere in the distant distant thoughts was the fact that we, we knew that if I got to the semi-finals that put me in the top 32 for the season going forward so that was kind of a target but um, I gave myself no chance of beating John Higgins and I don't think my friends and family did either uh, and so when I found myself eight apiece going into the last session I think that's right um, it was all to play for and you know you, you, you're effectively playing a, a best of nine to the quarters of the World Championship where you're going to play Steve Davis mm. and with no disrespect to Steve as my idol I fancied beating Steve mm. so it was effectively a, for me it was like play, this is for the semis mm. and um, even to this day you know 12 years on that is one of the best matches I've ever played the standard in that match was, you know, for once my safety and tactical game turned up and my potting and break building that week was probably the best of anyone that week. Mm. And um, it all came together in that game. And it was probably, if not if not the best, one of the best matches I played mm. in that whole tournament. Mm. And I slipped through a 13-9 winner, I think. Mm. Um, and one of the few good results I've had against Jack. <laughs> Well, you had a couple more good results to get to the final, so suddenly now it's the, the final weekend of the tournament and it's you against Matthew Stevens. It might be hard to sort of remember now, but what were your thoughts about just being in the world final? Was it, was it, because to someone like you who's grown up loving snooker, it's almost overwhelming to think, oh, I'm in this final. Yeah, and I was, I, I, I got caught up in the whole, it's the last ever yeah. embassy, all the champions are there, the past winners are all there, it's all history and it's this, that and the other and... You know that back then, walking out to play the final was the first time anyone saw the trophy, and I, I just wasn't ready for it. Yeah. You know, I just wasn't ready, and it was family who want tickets and passes, and you know, people listen to this might not understand that you know we get an allocation of these sure. tickets and passes, and it's up to us to do all that. So I've now got to field, you know, I've got ten tickets and five thousand people <laughs> who want to come, and it's all of that's going on whilst you're trying to prepare for the biggest match of your life. And I remember walking out to play that match. You know, I did well to walk into the arena without falling down the stairs. I was quite pleased with that. And, you know, at the end of that day, after day one, I was 10-6 behind. I was absolutely devastated 
but almost you know I did well to win ten to, to win six frames. Um, kind of you know gave myself a nod in the mirror as if to say, well, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> it should have been better, but it could have been a lot worse. And um, I went to bed that night a bit a bit disappointed, a bit kind of crestfallen. wasn't what I wanted to happen. But when I got up the next day, I had a feeling of I hadn't come this far to just give up. And um, I remember Steve and I went practicing at the Crucible early that Sunday morning, but early the Monday morning, but hadn't realised that um, the Sheffield half marathon was taking place on the same day. It took us about 45 minutes to get to the Crucible. Mm from where we parked and you know everyone running past was going shouting support and supportive messages and all the rest of it and we just went you know what we, let's just go out there and give every shot play every shot like it's your last mm. and see where we go mm. and um, there was a pivotal frame somewhere in the third session we were pulled off early in the third session there was a pivotal moment in there where Matthew chose to we both should have won this frame we both had chances to win it I missed the blue off its spot he then played the blue with the left hand and missed the blue, I potted blue, pink and black. And if there was a turning point, it was that. Mm. And um, we were pulled off a frame later. And uh, into the evening session, I mean, it was just no old barred. If the red popped out, I was going for it. Yeah. And, you know. But, but what, what I remember about the evening session was just to hammer home the, how big a deal it was. They brought out all the former champions as well, just to remind you that this is like really, really important and historic. And what was that like? You suddenly stood in front of the Ray Reardons. And yeah, it was terrifying. Cliff and all those guys. It was absolutely terrifying. Uh, and to know that, and to know that once that procession had happened, you know, it was the big embassy thing. Thanks for the, thanks for the memories and the fantastic support they put into our game. There was, you know, there was a massive party waiting to happen, mm. and I remember they had the procession of champions in the arena before the final session, and we came out to this, you know, great edited piece the BBC had put together from using a take that song about Matthew and I's junior careers and all that, and it was a real hair stand up on your arm moment, and then like you shake hands, you go, oh, well, we've got to play snooker now, <laughs> but for me as a as a real sort of historian of the game, the, the hardest thing for me was I knew that those great champions were watching the match. Mm. And, and it was very difficult dealing with all of those thoughts and emotions whilst trying to, am I going to play a thin clip safety here with running side or am I going to play the thing, oh, I wonder what John Spencer's thinking in the players' mm. lounge. You know, and, and it was, all of those things took some, took some real dealing with. And, of course, everyone watching on the telly just thinks you're trying to get over the fact it's the world final. And I had all these other things going in my, in my head as, as well. And I guess that's symptomatic of the fact that it was the first final I'd been in. And... Um, you know, not only was it the, you know, the first world championship in my career, and today only championship of the year, but it was my first tournament final as well, and I didn't know the ropes, mm. didn't know how to handle it at all, mm. didn't know how to handle any of it. <laughs> it was all guesswork. Mm. What are the moments like after winning? So you, you win, you shake hands, Hazel comes out, interview, presentation, you sort of parade the cup a little bit, and then that's the end of the TV coverage. You go backstage, you do the press conference. When's the sort of first moment you're allowed to actually have a bit of time to yourself and think, wow, I've actually, I've actually won the thing? Well, I don't know how it happened, but I, got, I managed to get back to my dressing room with the trophy in hand from the arena on my own. Right. And there was a little two, three-minute period where I was completely on my own. And there was a knock at the door, and I, I thought, I wonder why Steve's knocking on the door. I just assumed it was my coach. And there was John Spencer. And he was the first man to, to come and congratulate and say, well done. He was the first man to come and offer his welcome to the... World Championship Club and uh, it dawned on me then if it hadn't already it hit me then 
literally minutes after what a big deal this was. He was the first Crucible champion, of course. Because to me, he was big news. Mm. And he, he, he took time out of his night where he was being celebrated as a past champion to come and say well done to me. And I remember thinking, what a gent, you know, what a real gent. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the night and the days and years after that have all gone a bit mad. Mm. Yeah, I mean, exactly, because you, as I say, you weren't known to the general public. Now suddenly you're world snooker champion, millions have seen you do it. I mean, was it literally the next day you were getting calls and so on? How did your life sort of change immediately? It changed immediately. Mm. And, I mean, the most noticeable change was, I mean, you, you sort of... Certainly in today's world of social media and everything's instantaneous. Back then, that, not, that didn't exist. And, but it was a real example of how powerful the BBC were. Because nearly 8 million people watched that match. And it felt like for the next few weeks and months, I ran into them all mm. at petrol stations <laughs> or the shops or... You know, I walked into the shops doing the shop and a man followed me round the shop and tapped me on the show. He said, what are you doing in the shops? I said, I'm, I'm doing my shopping. <laughs> he, said, he said, don't you have somebody to do that for you? <laughs> and it was really weird, like, just because what I do for a living is on the TV, people have, a, they, they have an opinion of you and your lifestyle and what you're like. They think they know you. And the amount of people in the last 12, 13 years that have come up to me and have said, wow, we, you know, we, we, we thought we thought you were ABC, and actually you're X, Y, Z, or we, we had a we had a wrong concept, misconception of you, or you know, they think they know you mm. um, because of something they read about you is is remarkable. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm always I always I always feel very lucky that you know certainly you know we're not snooker isn't in the same realm as a football, or you know it's not tribal, sure. and you're not offending anyone's beliefs mm. uh, because you've beaten their team. Uh, because um, the, the, the level of attention you get as a snooker player is nice, and it's not too intrusive. You've got a lot of attention and, you know, question of sport and all that sort of thing that comes with it, the nice stuff that comes with it, but you're still having to play, so, and the following season there weren't that many tournaments. You know now you're under the microscope. Suddenly you're on the TV all the time, people are watching your results, so expectations change, not just other people's, but I guess your own as well. What was that like to deal with? Very difficult. Uh, that, as you've encapsulated in that question, that was the most difficult thing for me to deal with for the next 12 to 24 months. And I actually went back to ask the help of the guy that took us through the Young Players of Distinction Scheme, who's the psychologist that World Snooker employed, a guy called Stephen Sylvester. And I went back to him and asked him for help because I was really struggling dealing with the expectations that in the majority were my own. I imagined that I was going to walk out into the arenas and play like a world champion. And then, of course, that doesn't happen. You go out and play like Sean Murphy. And he's good some days and he's rubbish some other days. And, and you lose matches, you think, well, a world champion shouldn't lose that match or a world champion should have won that match. And you don't give the self-praise that you should because you think it's expected. And Yeah, it was difficult. And um, very difficult to, 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 to balance the invitations to golf days. And obviously golf's a big passion of mine, as people will know. And, um not wanting to turn people down, not wanting to turn BBC down for Sports Personality of the Year attending, not, not, not wanting to turn them down for filming A Question of Sport and Mystery Guest and BBC Five Live. And mm. you, want, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds, mm. so to speak. But also, you are a snooker player by trade mm. and you must do your regular five, six hours practice five, six days a week. Mm. Very difficult to find a balance there. Mm. And for two years, I didn't find it. Mm. But eventually you sort of settled into being a top player and you're, as we speak, one of only ten players to have won the Triple Crown, which I know 
to anyone is important, but you are, as you say, a bit of a historian, a bit of a snooker geek, I think we can say. So to, yeah. have won, to have won the UK and the Masters as well, that sort of completes the set for you. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, it took, took a long time. It was a long time coming um, to complete the set. And it was something I was definitely aware of, you know, in press conferences. I was batting the question away for years of when are you going to win the Masters? When my season started to become about preparing for the Masters. And, uh, you know, a, a defeat in the final, several semi-final defeats once the venue moved to the Ali Pali. I just didn't seem to play well at the conference centre. And then when we moved to the Wembley Arena again, just didn't seem to settle there. But the, I remember going to the Ali Pali first time and liking it, got to the final, but lost to Neil. Um, did like the venue and I, I felt good times were ahead of me there but when I did finally get that get that trophy in the in the cabinet it was certainly a, a relief you can put that to bed no one's going to ask you about the triple crown anymore um, and of course it's very very um, big deal for me you know to be the, one of the 10 players that have ever done that I think the 10 when you talk to people um, they, they name snooker players they tend to name yeah that group of players and um, I think there's an even smaller bracket you know you're into even more elite clubs of people that have won multiple triple crowns multiple world titles uh, I'm not in those conversations yet but um, hopefully have a few years ahead mm. you've won all sorts of trophies you won the tournament in Brazil for example and there's lots of other titles you've won but as you sort of assess your career at this stage as you're still going to top player do you feel you could have won more? You should have won more. You were in a couple of world finals. I mean, how do you how do you look at it? Because to a lot of people, they'd be delighted with your record. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if it was a school report, it would say something like, you know, did very well, um, but didn't reach his potential. And if I'm being brutally honest, I do feel as if I've left a bit out there. Um, you know, in golf terminologies, I've left a few pups out there. You know, a uh, few missed opportunities. But of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not in control of which events are classified as ranking events and which ones aren't. I'm not in control of which events don't come back the following year. And there was a bit of a joke on tour recently where, you know, if, if Sean wins an event, he gets canned the following year or gets declassified. Mm. You know, I won the Molds Cup and then it became an invitation event the year after. And so that doesn't count as a win. And even though I won it back to back years, Brazil doesn't count. Uh, the World Open didn't come back uh, the year after I won it. And there was a bit of a joke. And when I won the Masters, there was some concern. Um, <laughs> jinx, basically. There was a concern amongst the players, I think, that the tournament wasn't going to happen the next year. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a funny conversation to have because these events aren't easy, you know. Mm. And, and you, 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 see the, you see the jubilation after like Mark King wins an event after 26 years on tour. And it's a, it's a big deal. And then people turn to me and they say, oh, you've won these six ranking events and the Triple Crown, but you've not really, not really enough, is it? <laughs> and you kind of think, well, no, I agree, but it's, it's a funny conversation, isn't it? It's a funny question, and, I, and it's one I ask myself all the time. I think my, my pro wins uh, tally sort of stands up with most. Yeah, and also um, I interviewed Stephen Hendry on this podcast, and he you know, was regretting the fact he hadn't won the eighth world title. Now, you think if anyone would be satisfied with his record, but I guess that's what you guys are like. You always want more. I think, I think that, um, I, think, I think the day you become satisfied with your lot is mm. the day you start looking to do a bit more TV punditry mm. and, um, you know, writing a few articles and your career as a cutthroat sports person has gone. Mm. Um, I'm not happy with my trophy hall. Um, I would like to win more majors. I'd like to win more ranking events. You know, I try my absolute best every time I go out. Um, and when I stop, when that edge leaves me, I'll know it's time to stop. Well, there's one thing you're more unhappy about, and that's kicks. Now, no snooker player likes kicks, but you are kind of like a man on a mission to eradicate them. 
So can you sort of briefly tell us, A, how you feel this could happen, and B, where you are with it in terms of the people that need to make it happen? Well, what happened a few years ago was I was, you know, I was that sick of um, losing matches uh, with factors that I didn't think were my fault. And I see it's all over snooker, you know, you see these things happen. Yes, of course you miss shots and you miss pots and people can go, well, that was your opportunity. That's fine. But when you're in the heat of battle, you know, when you have a kick-on match ball, it's very hard to, it's very hard to take. So I tweeted and said, right, I'm going on a, I'm going on a, you know, some kind of mad mission. Um, I'm calling Indiana Jones and we're going to find the reason why, why this, why this weird thing happens. And I spoke to a lot of players from yesteryear who told me that the bad contact where balls can jump and a bit of a dull cue ball has been in the game forever and always will be. But the kick where a cue ball or object ball physically lift off the table and alter their trajectory is a new thing. New as in since the sort of early to mid-90s. And so I just started to look into the, re- you know, what else changed and I started to find quite a few factors that altered around that time as we took the tour to the Far East, uh, dealing with massive humidity conditions and trying to get our tables to play properly in those parts of the world. And suddenly you find the introduction of table heaters, the balls have changed, the TV stage lighting. All of these factors have affected the game. And um, together with a, a, a scientific researcher from Leeds called uh, Bob Ledger, um, who's been into Q Sports for 50 years, uh, we set off to try and find the cure. And we did. And um, a kick, um, or a bad bounce for that fact, are the same thing. And it's just an increase in friction between the two surfaces. Um, there are many factors as to what causes that. Um, and the, 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 easiest, what, the easiest change would have been for WPBSA to start using a different type of cloth. When the cloth is made in the factory, it's cropped to a very fine finish, like you, like in the barbers. Uh, and it's soaked, the blade that cuts the cloth is soaked in a, this particular oil. And it's that oil on the cloth, when heated in match play, that erodes the surface of the ball. And when an eroded part of ball A hits at the same ball B, that's a kick. So if we change the cloth, the problem disappears. If we turn the heaters off, the problem slows down. Or if we use the ball cleaning product that the ball manufacturer makes themselves because mm. they are aware of the problem, the problem diminishes drastically. And what's frustrated me now more than what causes the problems is that nothing has happened. Two years ago, if you'd have told me that I would go on this crusade, <laughs> discover the problem, mm. discover the, the, the solutions... And that we'd still be sat here talking about it, I wouldn't have bothered. So is it either they don't believe your explanation or they have their own ideas on what it is? or Because well, you must have gone to them. Well, clearly you've gone uh, to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we had a, we had a trial in the, in the Portuguese uh, tournament a couple of years ago where um, the, 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 the ball cleaning product was trialled. Now, it was trialled by one of our great guys who works tirelessly on the tour. Um, Pete Williamson, the referee, whose job it was that week was to polish the balls. Now, he had had no training in how to do this. Um, I was the one that had gone away and found this research. World Snooker hadn't asked me to brief Pete on how this should be done. And so, the, so it was done incorrectly. Okay. Um, having said all of that, it did reduce the kicks and bounces that week. It doesn't cure it 100%. 
but it did massively reduce. The problem we have is, the problem was twofold. One, no one knew about the test except me. Now that was wrong, and that was WPBSA's fault. The second thing was, the polish on the ball does quite drastically affect the way the balls move around the table, and does take some getting used to. Now, we're all professionals. With enough time to adapt, you would adapt. But going out there to play for your livelihood on conditions that are obviously different um, was wrong. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that left a very bitter taste. So when the players have since been asked for their feedback, their feedback has been, yes, it did work, but we don't like it. And it, it's very difficult to then get changed. We, Jason, our chairman, tries to run a very good democracy uh, but in my opinion, he's guilty of asking for too much opinion on, from people who, without wanting to be harsh, don't know what they're talking about. And uh, it's, it's a real frustrating process. Some people would just say, and I'm guessing you don't agree with this, kicks are just part of the game. Get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, unfortunately, you know, the, the difference between their opinion and my opinion is that I know what I'm talking about. I've done the scientific research into what causes these problems and apathy is what has allowed it to become part of the game. Um, it shouldn't be in snooker. I can't think of another sport that has something completely random happen in it at any moment that is so debilitating. Someone could say, well, you get a bad bounce playing golf, it might bounce in the fairway. And yeah, but you can see that. You yeah. can at least see it in yeah. front of you. Yeah. You can see all the obstacles. Snooker, you can't, and we've seen it in matches for years now. It robs people of victories that they have earned, and for some players, in fact, for most players, it costs them dearly financially. Uh, then, from a confidence point of view, results. It's, it, 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 it affects almost every game that's played, mm. and it's it's something that's so easily solved. Okay, well, there are a lot of games played now because there are a lot of tournaments. Things have changed a lot in recent times. Uh, I get the feeling, well, I know for a fact that you enjoy it more than a lot of players you actually quite like, not necessarily the travelling because that's quite tiring, but just being at all these events and having the opportunity to play so many tournaments. I mean, when I took up snooker, I, I, you know, being on tour, being a professional tour in the world, playing in snooker events was, was the dream. Mm. And uh, I'm, living, I'm living my dream, my boyhood dream, and my boyhood love of the game has never gone away. And... You know, when I hit, when I when I read and hear debates about tour numbers and tour structures and money dripping down to the bottom end of the game and players aren't paid enough and I just get so disappointed because I feel like a lot of players have lost that boyhood fascination with snooker that they once would have had and they've a lot of them have got a bit misguided and a bit disenchanted with the game and if you treat snooker like a job you're on a losing streak it's not the right snooker isn't a job it's a vocation when you take that decision to take up sport as opposed to a job you're taking the decision to back yourself and your ability to achieve and from in my opinion it's then the governing body's job to give us playing opportunities for you to go and showcase your abilities that you work hard on to prepare for these tournaments and when you, it's very current at the moment. Um, players saying, well, I don't get paid enough for being on the tour and this and that. I, I, it gets my hackles up a little bit because mm. there were certainly no guarantees when I turned pro. But neither did I expect any. Mm. 
What are you like at losing, though? Because I, I get the impression you're quite good at hiding your disappointment. But you must... All great champions are pretty bad losers, aren't they? Terrible loser. <laughs> Terrible loser. I think there are worse losers than me, than me but not many. Mm. Um, I have to say that since becoming a father... I've become a better loser uh, because I quickly realise I'm going home to my little boy and sure. actually that's not too bad. <laughs> but um, as far as playing the game, you know, I will give absolutely everything to try and win a game. Um, I think I'm, people accuse me of perhaps not looking that bothered, you know, because um, I might smile and shake my opponent's hand and say good luck to them and uh, wish them all the best. But for me, that's about being a good sportsman. You know, we're both trying to win. No, you can't win all the time. And um, trying to set a good example to kids and young players out there watching that, you know, slamming your cue down and banging the table and moaning and whinging after isn't how to behave. Um, because you see people doing it doesn't make it right. And um, I can assure you that when I go home, Elaine would back me on this. I'm a terrible loser when I'm at home. Okay. Let's sort of begin to wrap up by talking about the future. I mean, you're still very much a top player now, but no one goes on forever. I think anyone who's heard you talk would think, well, you're a sort of shoe-in for like the BBC sofa or a Eurosport sofa in the future. Is that something that, that interests you? Listen, I, I'd love to be involved in any way um, until I'm no longer able to. And, uh, you know, I will play snooker um, professionally or none until the day I die. And... You know, if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm ever offered the opportunity to try and pass on um, any knowledge or experience to people playing this wonderful game of ours, then it's something I will take with both hands. Um, if 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 either of the two broadcasters you mentioned considered me worthy, then um, I'd be very very happy and honoured to take that position. But uh, you know, I, playing and trying to compete is is my major priority at the moment. Um, you know, it's nice to be asked to do little filler pieces on player techniques and things like that. Um, it's something I enjoy. But uh, at the moment, the priority is still trying to win. But um, as you can tell, I, I have no problem rambling. So, uh, <laughs> That's why I asked you. That's why I asked you to come on. <laughs> um, I have no problem rambling on. So I may as well ramble about snooker. OK, well, you finish your because we're going to finish with a non-snooker round, OK? Because you're a big James Bond fan, as mm. I am. And we've got a quick fire round here. I'm just going to ask you to name the best from the Bond films in each category, OK? There's been no pre-warning of this. No. So it's just off the top of your head. So, best Bond villain? Best Bond villain? Um, I'm going to have to say... Um, actually, you know, I forget his name. But he was the guy He was the guy in Tomorrow Never Dies. Well, oh, no, yeah, the, the newspaper. Elliot, he, Elliot Carver. I thought I he, was, he, was, yeah. he was just acid. OK. He was acid. OK. Jonathan Price. Yeah, OK. Best Bond girl? Best Bond girl. I think every one of my generation had a bit of a thing for Halle Berry. Mm. Um, um, so, yeah, I'll tip my cap to Halle Berry. Okay. Best theme song. Um, it was it was it was one of the ones I learned. It was um, Skyfall. Okay. Yeah. And uh, on the piano. You yeah. Mean? Whenever whenever Chris Henry, Chris Henry, my coach, is the best amateur pianist I've ever seen. And um, if I ever get as good as he is, then I'll, I'll be very, very happy. But Skyfall was one of the ones I learned. And um, whenever he comes around, it's, you know, forget the snooker, let's get the piano on. And, uh, yeah, Skyfall's good. OK. Best Bond, as in the actor playing James Bond? Yeah. I, I, do you know, I think Daniel Craig's the best Bond. I think, um, I think it's, you know, everyone would probably say the one of their generation, the one they grew up watching. 
Uh, and for me, that was you know um, probably Roger Moore, probably. But yeah. he was a bit, he was a bit like you know mega Comedy cheese, bond. mega cheese yeah. fest. You know, yeah. some some villain would have just told him to shut it at some <laughs> stage and just slapped him around the face. But yeah, um, yeah no, I think Craig is uh, Craig has that fine balance of quite quite good one-liners, but he is an absolute machine. Mm. Okay, and finally the the big one, best Bond film. Best Bond film. I'm going to go for Skyfall. Okay. I'm going to go for Skyfall. I thought uh, thought the last few, because it was getting a bit comedy. It was getting a bit. It was getting a bit like yeah, it's the gadgets and the car and it's a bit this and that. But it's gone back to its roots, I think, with Daniel Craig and and um, you, you remember the fact that he is an absolute savage assassin at the end of the day, and uh, he looks immaculate in his dinner suits. Mm. Um, dressed like that, he would have made a good snooker player. <laughs> uh, uh, just. Great films, really enjoy watching them. Uh, they're the films you can't really watch enough of. Mm. You can always watch them again. That's what I like. Well, they're always on, them. which helps. Yeah, they're always on ITV4 <laughs> at some exactly. stage, yeah. <laughs> at some yeah. night, along yeah. with Shawshank Redemption. Yes. Uh, they're <laughs> always on. And it's funny in the snooker community, because as soon as one of those films is on, it goes around Twitter like, yeah. you know, wildfire. Yeah. And someone will tweet it out, and we're all on it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> although we never comment, we're all watching it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Good luck. We're here in Scotland this week. Good luck in the tournament and for the rest of the season. Thanks very much. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.